Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Matthew Thiel, Financial Advisor with RPA Wealth Management. I'm joined as always by Joshua Winterswag. Josh, how are you doing today? Doing well, Matt. Thank you, Josh. Great to see you. Brent, how's it going today? Excellent, Matthew. I'm excited for the show. Yeah, me too. We have a great show on deck today. We're going to talk about underdog financial concepts. But what really got us started for this show is thinking of some of our favorite underdog moments. Um, when I think of underdog moments, I think of the USA hockey team, 1980 Miracle on Ice. I know they made a great Disney movie about it. Who starred in that movie? Was it Mel Brooks? Kurt Russell? Oh, uh, yeah. Kurt was Russell. Was it Kurt Russell? Yeah, it was right? Kurt Russell. Yeah, you're right. That was a great movie. Brent, what was your favorite underdog moment? What do you think about? I think the one that comes to mind is one that was more recent, and that was Tiger Woods winning the Master. I mean, the guy hadn't won in 11 years. He had all those personal issues going on with his life. He had his body issues, these injuries with his back, stepped away for years, and then all of a sudden comes back out of nowhere and wins the major. Nobody thought he would ever win again, or most people didn't. Yeah, it was awesome to watch, too. It was. And just to see all of that struggle, just quite an accomplishment from him and quite the underdog in that situation. There's nothing like Sunday when Tiger's in the hunt. It's must-watch TV. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm not like a, a huge, big golf guy, but... Matt, did you watch that that Sunday? I did. It's the only golf I've probably watched in 20 years. I mean, Tiger, Tiger makes the red shirt cool. Yeah, he does. It was good to see him back at the top. Another cool underdog sports moment on, on the topic for me would be in the Super Bowl. I don't remember what the number is. They're all pretty high Roman numerals, but the Giants-Patriots Super Bowl, do you guys remember that when the Patriots were undefeated? David Tyree. Uh, yeah, David Tyree. He made that crazy catch, and the Giants upset them. I think OCU Minora and Michael Strahan were uh, basically eating Tom Brady's lunch all day. Yeah, I think it's only the Giants – twice and then the eagles have been the only ones to beat the patriots in the super bowl right yeah our rams gave it a good shot last year but that was i don't know if i'd say that was a good shot that was not a good shot man we were in the super bowl i think and i think the patriots were undefeated throughout the regular season and the playoff or obviously the playoffs but they they were were. undefeated through the regular season when the giants beat them making it even more of a a big underdog story and that catch was the turning point yeah it was josh what's your favorite underdog moment when we talked about it earlier, I tend to always lean U.S. soccer because we're kind of an underdog story. But one that was just more recent was the boxing match with Anthony Joshua and I believe his name's Ruiz. Yeah, Andy Ruiz Jr. Anthony Joshua was a you know two-time champion. He held like two different world title belts, and Anthony Ruiz looks like he he hadn't trained at all for the fight and walked in there and knocked Anthony Joshua out. And it, just looking at the guys. It looked like an underdog story that Anthony Ruiz didn't have a chance to beat Anthony Joshua just because he's so huge. But that was quite an underdog story if you guys watched that. Is Anthony Joshua American? He's British. Yeah, he's a British fighter. And I think that like he was on his way to to fighting the other champion and Anthony Ruiz Jr., who no one's ever heard of, (laughs) ended up going in there and and ruining his big payday or his big fight with, I think it's like Dante Whitaker or something like that. That probably cost him pay-per-view dollars. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boxing's probably pretty upset that that underdog story happened. Yeah, that was an interesting one. I know even the betting markets were a little bit shocked. I I think they thought the match was fixed, right? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, just a big underdog. Vegas, I think, took a big hit with, uh, with him losing, but... Wow. So moving on to the financial concepts, we have three picked out for today as our underdog concepts. And these are things you want to 
really be considering in retirement? Our first concept is liquidity followed by predictability. And lastly, we'll talk about simplicity and we're going to give really details about what they all mean. Josh, what does liquidity mean? Matthew, liquidity to me just means how fast you can get your money out of your pocket. And in other words, how fast you can convert an account into cash or, or get it to where you can spend it. And an example of this is, you know, your checking account. The money is in cash already. You have a checkbook and a debit card or you could pull out cash and spend it that way, but there's no penalty, there's no tax implication, and that money's just readily available for your consumption. And savings accounts are the same. Savings accounts can be accessed and moved around, and they're already in cash, so they have ultimately tons of liquidity, or if you'd like to say 100% liquidity. Um, and then you could probably even group in you know, some investment or products that have high liquidity, short-term CDs, you know, one month, three month, even, you know, six month CDs that are less than a year also have pretty high liquidity. So now do you have to pay a penalty on those short-term CDs? You do. Yeah. And most of the time it's some percentage of the interest earned. So, you know, if you didn't know what the penalty was on your CD, it's some sort of calculation of what you've earned on the CD of whatever rate, you know, it was renewed at. Yeah, so essentially liquidity is how fast you can convert your money to cash. And if your money's at a bank, essentially if the bank's open, you could probably get it out. Mm -hmm. Some other things that people don't think of on the liquidity side is actually mutual funds, stocks, and bonds are quite liquid. And mutual funds are pretty unique in that they only trade at the end of the day. So that means when you're placing a trade in, in your brokerage account or retirement account to purchase a mutual fund, you are buying that fund at the close of business. So you actually also sell that fund at the close of business that day. So you get the money in your account or you get the money taken out of your account. They settle on what we call in the industry to use a little jargon as T plus one. So trade in one day, the next morning the cash is in your account and you can withdraw it from there. On the other side, the stocks and bonds, they settle on, they used to settle T plus three, but now they settle T plus two. So you place the trade that day, it takes two days to settle, but that's still fairly liquid compared to some of the other investments. So Brent, do you have anything to add on the, on the stocks, bonds, or mutual funds? No, I think the only thing uh, would be is, so if you're trading your stocks and you needed your money, how liquid, how, how long would it be before the person can actually start spending money? Oh, right. That depends on the bank. And the way you transfer. So you, ge generally the liquidity that you're talking about is a, is a two to three day process. Right. To get your actual money, unless you use a wire, right? Yep. A wire is instant. Yep. A lot of the major banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, they'll have quicker processing times if you're moving from a large broker like Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity. But some of those smaller banks or credit unions are going to take a little bit longer to process. Josh, do you have anything to add? No, just that technology has helped with that liquidity with them too, with you know, allowing it to be, you know, transferred through ACH and electronic transfer when by not even having to do a wire. I mean, a lot of times before your only option might've been a check and you would have had to wait one to two weeks to, you know, complete the trade, process the check and get it mailed to you. So just technology has made, you know, the stocks, bonds and mutual funds, the liquidity time has increased yeah. or gotten better. Not to go down a rabbit hole, but I think that's one of the whole promises about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, right, is its instantaneous settlement and liquidity. Mm -hmm. Moving on, though, 
What are some examples of some non-liquid investments, Josh? Just start with retirement accounts. Think, you know, with the increase of popularity with retirement accounts, we're seeing so many more people with IRAs, 401ks, and different compensation plans, and not knowing how liquid they are. I think it's a good place to start. Yeah, I think this is a real controversial one. Why do you guys think that retirement accounts are non-liquid? Because I, I think a lot of people think, oh, I have maybe, you know, 50000 100000 in my retirement account. I could take a loan. I could press withdrawal right here on the screen and get my money. How's that not liquid? Well, again, it's how fast you can get it into your pocket. So with a retirement account, depending on the retirement account, because all of them have, you know, kind of their own rules especially with withdrawals and rollovers and stuff like that. But it could be anywhere from one week to a month or even more before you actually get your hands on the money because of the processing time, not only with the 401k, but maybe the, your HR department. Even the fact liquidity-wise with the loan, you're only able to loan so much from the 401k. So thinking you can loan the 100% balance from the 401k is also inaccurate. So time-wise from getting the 401k account into your pocket to be able to spend it is not as quick as the checking savings account. So obviously it's not as liquid or doesn't have that great of liquidity to it. Right. And also if you withdraw before your age 59 and a half, you're going to get stuck with that 10% penalty. Yeah. And that's a completely another issue with the 401k and IRS. Yeah. Moving on. Another one that people don't realize when they purchase these is annuities are very illiquid. Brent, what do you think about annuities and liquidity? Annuities do create many challenges if you're trying to take your money out. First of all, they have limited accessibility to it. So generally, these contracts only allow you to have anywhere from 5 to 10% free withdrawal from them. Sorry to cut you off, Brent. What do you mean when you say free withdrawal? So most of the annuities out there will allow you to take out five to 10%, and generally it's usually around 10% of the account or what they call accumulation value. So if you have $100,000 in your annuity, you're allowed to take out, based on the contract rules, if it's 10%, $10,000 out of the contract. Now, if you wanted to take out that $10,000, most companies make you do it by form or by phone call. Many of them send out a check, so you could be waiting a week, two weeks, just to get your 10% out of your contract. Are there any penalties involved when you're withdrawing money from an annuity? Do you forego interest or anything like that? If you're going above the free withdrawal limits, then yes, you pay a surrender charge. Plus, they have something called market value adjustment that could also increase the penalty that you're paying. Can you explain surrender charge? This is something that's a little new to, to me. So when you sign up for an annuity contract you have a surrender charge if you take out more than what your allowable amount is on that free withdrawal. So some contracts will have 5, 10, 15, up to 20% surrender charge. So if you take out above the 10% allowable free withdrawal, then you could be paying a 10 or 15% penalty. Wow. So essentially to access your money, you could be paying a fee of anywhere from 10 to 20%. Correct, on the amount that you are above the free withdrawal amount. Well, anything else to add on annuities, Joshua? No, I think Brent ex explained it well, and just the surrender fee charges are alarming. <laughs> yeah, the insurance companies do not work like the custodians where you can get access to your money in a rather quick manner. A lot of it's done by old technology checks, phone, 
processing days. It's a long process. Yeah, totally. Anything else to add on the non-liquid investments? What would some of the solutions be? You know, that's a great question. Joshua, I think a a good solution, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, would be just to have a a proper emergency fund. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've even talked about emergency fund in in a different podcast already. But just I had a kind of a shocking statistic that I saw come across um, my Twitter, and it said just 40% of Americans are able to cover an unexpected $1,000 expense. And when I first read that, I was like, this is very alarming because we all have emergency expenses that come up. I think we share stories about kind of things that come up that we have to pay for. And so I think this is kind of also why we're talking about the liquidity issue is where's that money going to come from if we don't have an emergency fund. And so a solution of, you know, having at least three months of living expenses saved in a completely liquid account, like a savings or money market can really help with the liquidity concerns in the future for, you know, anything that may arise or, you know, emergency and stuff like that. So we just feel very strongly about emergency funds and how valuable they can be. And it's also very underrated. Yeah. And to put some math behind what you're talking about, say your expenses are 5,000, three months expenses would just be having $15,000 saved. And I know that sounds like a lot of money, but you you work up over time. You know, you put a hundred dollars away a month or a little more and before you know it in a few years you'll have that 15,000 saved and and you won't be a statistic like you just mentioned. Yeah, right. Moving on to our next topic, this one is predictability and what we mean is predictability in retirement. Kind of maybe seeking out those guaranteed returns. Brent, what's predictability mean to you? Predictability means seeking out and getting or receiving guaranteed returns in an uncertain time or world. Let's say for example, you had $500,000 just to make numbers simple and you were receiving a 2.5% return, whether on a savings account or CD, that would give you, so that you would know, $12,500 every year, basically $1,041 a month, you would know would be coming in every single month. And if you really knew what your budget was, and you only needed $1,000 a month, and you were able to live your lifestyle off that $1,000, having that money predictable and coming in every month would make things a lot easier. Yeah, it certainly would. And what you're describing is is very similar to probably how how a bond works, right? So most people don't know this, but the bonds are actually really predictable and it's really easy to know your rate of return if you do the simple thing of just buying the actual bond and holding it. So let's say you put a million dollars into a bond. We'll call it a U.S. government bond. And the interest rate is 5%. So what that means is you're going to get $50,000 a year in interest over the term of the bond. So let's say it's a 10-year bond, so you get $50,000 every year for 10 years. Then at the end of the bond, you will get your money back. You'll get your million dollars. So you made $50,000 per year for 10 years. So how much would that be? You made Mm $500,000, and then you get your million back. Right. So your rate of return is already known when you go into it, as long as you hold it till maturity. Is this kind of how the previous generation used CDs? Yeah, very similar to that. And and this is actually probably perfect retirement scenarios, right? You're creating that predictability. You have 50,000 coming in. You have, you know, 30, 40,000 a year from Social Security. Get your call 80,000 a year in income. That's what you have to live on. Yeah, I think a lot of people's mentality is they don't want to spend their principal of their assets that they've saved. Right, yeah, they don't. And, And that's the beauty about bonds here. 
Because in a bond, yeah, sure, you're locking up your principal for the term of the bond, but you're getting it back at the end. Right. And I think a lot of people, you know, you hear stories about the 70s or periods of time in history where bond interest rate or CDs rates were at these levels where people could really have a nice income stream every year from them. Yeah, totally. So anything else to add on the predictability side? No. All right. All right. Well, let's move on to what's non-predictable. And I mean, so far we've really talked about some boring concepts, right? CDs and bonds. Josh, are stocks predictable? No, no. <laughs> yeah, a little bit more exciting than the the CDs and the bonds that you guys were just discussing. But obviously, more exciting, less predictable, and you know, can be a, a lot more volatile uh, with the stocks. And and also, if we're talking about junk bonds as well, so I think we can kind of dip into that today. Yeah. So junk bonds would be a low-rated company. Well, that's actually use everyone's darling of a company, Tesla. Tesla issues junk debt. They have a low credit rating. And what that means is essentially there's a higher than likely chance they're going to default on their loan, which would make your bond useless and means you actually don't get your money back. You only get your money back if the bond doesn't default. Well, I think Tesla would probably call them high yield bonds, though. Not, not, not they don't call their own bonds junk bonds. That's true. Yeah, but they are they're considered junk bonds. <laughs> And then on the stock side, you know, we see a lot of people come in here and they want big returns, right? And they want to chase the hot stock. They want to buy Snapchat. They want to buy Facebook. They want to buy Uber. Today, the hot stock is beyond meat. And they want to dump their whole retirement savings into that. But it's just not a way to do it. You want predictability in retirement. And your time to make your nest egg is over. Can people use their dividends as somewhat predictable income? Yes and no. Dividends aren't predictable. The company controls a dividend. They could cut it at any time. And also, dividend returns aren't a great use of a company's capital. Right. Essentially, if a company is paying you a dividend, it means they're not investing in their own company. Right. So they have nothing better to do but pay out their shareholders. And which would kind of favor, then why don't we get lean towards that predictable interest rate yeah. instead? Yeah. So as my dad has gotten closer to retirement, one of the things that he would always call me and ask me is, he's like, hey, son, when I retire, you know, how much is my portfolio going to give me an income? And for a long time, I was trying to figure out what he was really asking. But what he was trying to figure out, you know, he obviously wanted to know what his income is going to be. But I think a lot of people have this misunderstanding that their whole portfolio is going to give them this fixed income for the rest of their life. And it doesn't always work like that. You know, one of the things that you can look at is if you are going to go into a savings rate or CDs, you're probably going to have to give up some return and sacrifice long-term returns for that predictability, which if you can get a decent predictable return off of your portfolio and you know it's going to be guaranteed and that fits in with your budget, that may not be a bad plan if it works within your plan. But if you're going to be in stocks and bonds and you're going to have a diversified portfolio, it's probably not going to be as predictable as if you were just getting a 1% or 2% return in a savings account. Would you say it's kind of like when you're bowling and you put the bumpers on? Like it, it kind of like lessens your margin for error? Absolutely. 
That's a great analogy. I bowl with the bumpers on. <laughs> I would imagine you did. When my kids, when we go bowling with my kids, we put the bumpers on for them. But what about you? I'm sure you're hitting the bumper lane too. Yeah, I hit the bumper lane also. Yeah, it's fun. It makes it, it makes the sport a little better. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, anything final to close with? No, just, you know, if we're looking at predictability for retirement clients, uh, I, we were at a conference and I, and I just heard this quote from Professor Bob Merton, and he had mentioned that when retirees look at their nest egg or their lump sum as this dollar amount, so let's just call it a million dollars that I've saved entering retirement, and the mindset is we need that money to grow, and we want that million dollars to grow to 1.2 million or 1.3 million, but the reality is in retirement that that 1 million is going to turn into your income stream, and looking at it, of how much do I want my income to change in retirement instead of looking at the dollar amount of the lump sum. So how much income is the lump sum going to create me, but then how much variance do I want in my income through retirement? And that's where I think that predictability can help with decreasing, like we talked about the guardrails or decreasing that variance in the income and really looking at your lump sum pot of money more of your income for the rest of your life. And when we change that and adding some predictability can really help. Yeah, I love that. And I love Professor Murn. He's one of the great retirement researchers. Essentially, to summarize this topic, I would say, if you're getting ready to retire, don't put your retirement nest egg into pot stocks or the hot tech stock. Leave that for the kids. <laughs> Moving on, our final topic, underrated financial concept is simplicity. And simplicity is an interesting one, right? Because Everyone seems to think if they make things more complex, it's better. But that is not true. Simple strategies will outperform complex strategies all of the time. So what do we mean by simplicity? Well, let's just start with your financial life. Why do you keep multiple checking or savings accounts or have multiple IRAs? I know this is something all of us see. Why do you think people do that, Brent? They do that because they go back to the old strategy that was done tens and tens of years ago where grandma had an envelope for clothing, grandma had an envelope for food, she had an envelope for travel, and so she would separate all of her different envelopes out for things that she was budgeting for. And then as things became more electronic, they took those envelopes and they started using them for checking accounts. And now they have multiple checking accounts at different banks and different places. That's one reason. The other one is some people just like having multiple accounts at many different places. Yeah, I think they fear the whole bank run, right? Like, oh, Chase Bank of America goes under. I'm going to keep half my money at Wells, half my money at Bank of America, and the other half at the credit union. Yeah, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, little did they know in 2008 when the financial economy almost collapsed, the banking system, every bank almost went under. Correct. And if that happens, we have a ginormous problem and the money in your bank probably isn't going to help you. And right. a long line at the FDIC insurance window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of people call an FDIC. Yeah. And, and I think that like the banks are guilty of this, of selling multiple checking accounts and savings accounts. It's like the summer saver or the vacation fund or the Christmas savings account. And 
then it just led to like this multiplying of, of bank accounts and the bankers that are kind of pushing that. And obviously they have revenue behind it that's being generated. So they're to blame too. Well, didn't you used to work for a bank and after college? I did. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the, I guess the personal bankers or the, the bank sales department, don't you make more money the more checking and savings accounts you open? Yeah, and, and depending on if they're like older products, I mean, there was some incentive to that. I didn't really believe in that with like turning over accounts that just, if it's not benefiting the client. And a lot of people in a lot of the branches that I worked at had that mentality, but it's just hard because it, they do and generate revenue. So for the bank and there's incentive behind it. So they're, they are promoting opening up multiple accounts. And there could be pretty high fees if you don't carry a minimum balance that's required for the checking account, right? Yeah, and that's and that can be detrimental to the person and they open up an account, they use the money that they originally started with it and now all of a sudden there's a fee for that account which the bank's generating revenue from. Right. And if you had two, three, four checking accounts at different institutions and you weren't carrying the minimum, I mean, that could be a pretty significant cost every month. Yeah. And I think that's kind of leading into that next topic of like consolidating because the more money you have at one bank, usually the more benefits and perks that you have. So, you know, instead of having $10,000 at three different banks, having $30,000 at one bank could actually provide you more benefit. Yeah, totally. And, and the other thing besides checking in savings accounts that people seem to have multiple accounts of is really any type of retirement account. And now I understand how, how this has happened. It's really probably a product of the 401k marketplace, right? You start a 401k at one employer, maybe get laid off or you transition five years later, you open up another 401k. And before you know it, you have three or four 401ks, maybe you have a couple IRAs lying around. But in most instances, you can actually roll those together and create one account. Anything on, on the retirement accounts to add, boys? No, I think just if you have an IRA, um, you probably don't need a, an IRA at each different custodian like people will do with checking accounts. You have one IRA under one brokerage account or whatever institution that you're at, and you don't need multiple accounts. How often do you see that, Brent? I mean, I know, you know, just with your experience in with your financial advising career, how often do you see there being multiple, multiple accounts? More times than there are with people that just have one IRA. They have an IRA at the bank. They have an IRA at the custodian. They have a stock account that they do on their own that they have an IRA. They have an IRA with their advisor. And now they have three or four IRAs and they really don't understand what each one is doing. And they all should be complementing each other, each IRA. Right. They're all working in different directions and nothing's actually working together. Right. I think you even saw like a life insurance policy in an IRA one time. Yeah, that was a complete <laughs> anomaly and it was just a bear to get situated between all the insurance company and the custodian. Causing even more complexity. So much more complexity. I'm probably going to disgrace my CFP marks, but I didn't even know it was possible to, to buy life insurance in your IRA. <laughs> I didn't either until he showed me that statement. Yeah, it, it was done a long time ago, and I think some of the rules have obviously changed since then, but it created a lot of complexity for the client. Interesting learning learning uh, process with that one. Absolutely. <laughs> and moving on to the next one, the other kind of thing we see people do where they're not keeping it simple and they're making it complex is they're hiring multiple advisors, right? And the way the way they kind of do this is, I know people have told us before, 
I'm going to give you 50,000. I'm going to give the guy at JP Morgan 50,000. I'm going to give the guy at Waterfront 50,000. And I'm going to give my brother-in-law 50,000. And whoever makes me the most money at the end of the year is going to be my advisor and they're going to get it all. Yeah, you know what that's called? No. A failing plan. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, anything to add on the multiple advisor front? No, it just goes against a lot of a lot of what we believe in with strategy. I mean, you just have four captains driving one boat. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be issues with, you know, you, you want one captain driving the boat so you can kind of get to that island together and safe and on time. And, and having four captains can obviously cause a lot of conflict. Yeah, I mean, just on the surface, I had a client ask me, hey, can we sell some of this stock positions that he had in his portfolio? And he had multiple advisors and then it was, you know, hey, well, you're going to have capital gains here and what's going on in your other portfolios? And he couldn't answer that question. And so from a tax perspective, it creates so many complexities and it is different captains driving one bus and everybody's going in the different direction. Yeah. And that's a great point on the taxes too, because who knows what's going on in the other portfolios and there's so many implications. Great point. It all comes down to planning. You got to have one plan and you need to be going in one direction. Yeah, I agree. What's the solution for simplicity? What can people take home from this topic? I think the solution for simplicity is to create a financial plan to know what your goals are and be able to consolidate and simplify everything and then be working with one advisor on it. Yeah, I agree. Um, Consolidating those accounts is a good start. Not having multiple accounts at multiple places makes a lot of sense. Josh, do you have anything to add? Yeah, and, and just making sure that you know those plans are based around your goals, and I think that'll help drive the simplicity. So if you know you're really sitting down and looking at short-term and long-term goals, and then coming up with a plan to consolidate and simplify, it all kind of falls in line and makes it easier to to manage. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I will ask you guys because we are talking about this. And we want to kind of talk our book here. Do you have multiple accounts at multiple places, Joshua? Actually, on the retirement side, I have my 401k and my IRA. And so, I mean, no, as far as consolidation, bank accounts, just two different banks. And probably in the future could even listen to this podcast and consolidate those down to one, too. But not as much as when you first asked me this question that I was afraid of before I thought about it. (laughs) What about you, Brent? No, I, I keep everything pretty much all consolidated. I have one IRA. I have one brokerage account and then i just have my checking and saving so i i keep it pretty simple yeah so i have to admit when we were doing this i realized i was guilty of this on the savings account side so i have a high yield savings account with marcus where i keep the majority of my emergency fund and then my wife and i have a a joint savings account at chase that we put the money in that we got from our wedding and then i also have a very small savings account at chase that i move money in and out of when i have excess in my checking so I guess I should close that one. <laughs> We're going to have to talk after this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I need to take my own advice and consolidate. Yeah, keeping it simple just makes it so much easier. And then if you have so many multiple accounts, I mean, you're getting so many tax forms at the end of the year too. And then you got to keep the envelopes and give them all to your tax guy. Does it really benefit you to have that many accounts? Hmm. That's a great point. And the, the tax man's so busy, he's probably going to forget one and mess it up. You're going to have to redo your turn. It's going to be a mess. Not yeah, it's just fun. not worth it. No. I- anything else to add today, boys? No, I think I think the, some great topics and a lot of a lot of underdogs under there. So, 
Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Matthew Thiel. I was joined by Joshua Winterswike and Brent Pasqua. You can learn more about us by visiting us at our website, www.rpawealth.com. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcast. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.